My name is Eric Rosen, the author of The Rosen Report, and I'm very excited to be here today with Ted Seides as part of the 3i Founder Series. Ted, welcome. Thanks, Eric. Great. I'm really excited. You know, it's not often that one gets to interview the interviewer, so uh, uh, it's going to be good today. <laughs> so why don't we start with uh, how you get interested in investing? How did that all come about? I guess I got into it right out of college. I wasn't a 13-year-old bar mitzvah boy you know, <laughs> putting my bar mitzvah money into stocks. I don't remember how much money I got in my bar mitzvah. It wasn't much. Uh, my father was a doctor, and he, it's funny, he held stocks, but he is, I don't, he wasn't a hoarder, but he never traded or did anything. In fact, he still owns IBM that he bought in 1959. Uh, I just think it's a shame he didn't buy Berkshire Hathaway back then. Yeah. It might be yeah. a different lifestyle. Um, so I kind of watched him watch the tickers and read the newspapers. I was interested in it. Uh, but I did the normal interviewing process out of college, um, Wall Street things. And among those, I interviewed at the Yale Investments Office. And that ended up being my first job out of college and my uh, my first experience in the business. Yeah. I mean, what an amazing experience under David Swenson. So what's the biggest takeaway? What's the one or two things that you learned there that really resonates today? I mean, it's safe to say I, everything I really learned about the fundamentals of investing, I learned in my five years from David. The parts that resonate the most as you kind of go through your own career, manage capital yourself, are some of the more subtle things. It's one of these things where everybody knows what he says is right. Ah, diversification is the ultimate free lunch, have an equity bias, be really disciplined. That's a good thing. Have alignment of interest. That's all really important. But the extreme discipline to stick to it is one of the things that I experienced. And it was one of those lessons when that's what you see, it's pretty easy to internalize it when you see that before you see anything else. And it was always stark to me in the years since how rare that was. Yeah. Uh, it was just part of the DNA I was trained in. So it was a natural thing for me, but yet you look across the industry and it, it isn't something that's very common. Yeah, I think sticking to your knitting is, is not something that happens a lot. I've, I said when I ran my fund, there are three things that blow you up. Mandate creep would be one of them. There, you know, you're a long, short equity guy, and then all of a sudden you get into private equity or venture, and we can talk about that actually today because that has, you know, uh, resonates today in light of what happened last year. And, you know, being disciplined is really hard when markets aren't giving you what you want. So it's hard to stay disciplined, but I agree a hundred percent with that, that advice. What do you mean by markets not giving you what you want? Don't markets always give you what you want? <laughs> not me. No, which is why I closed <laughs> my hedge fund. Uh, otherwise, you know, if, as I say, my investing hero is a guy named Stan Druckenmiller that everybody knows from Duquesne who had, I think, 30 year track record of 30% returns with no down years. And so uh, he broke the pound in what, 91 or 90, 91. Um, he's my hero. And let's just say my returns weren't quite 30% a year for 30 years with no down years. Not quite. Otherwise, <laughs> I'd still be doing it. Um, so you co-founded Protege, which interestingly, we actually spoke when I was running a hedge fund about uh, investing together. And you were the president and CIO. So talk about that experience, uh, You know what happened there. And you did it for quite a while. How'd that go? Yeah. So it's a couple of years after business school. Uh, hedge funds were really in vogue in the early 2000s. And part of that was you went through this period in 2000 to 2002 where the markets had really sold off mm -hmm. um, with the popping of the dot-com bubble. But a lot of long-short equity hedge funds were effectively long value and short growth. And that worked really, really well. So you had this mm -hmm. period of time where the stock markets were down and hedge funds made a lot of money. So money started coming in. And I had an opportunity to start what became Prozio Partners, which was a hedge fund of funds focusing on smaller managers and doing some seeding. And did it for 14 years. And so it was a, 
a much better business than I thought it was going to be for a long time. And then worse than I thought it could be after <laughs> kind of 2011, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Um, and so it, w- it was great. You know, it, it was for me, a lot of it was the implementation of the lessons I had learned at Yale. So looking for a certain type of manager that I was biased towards, um, applying what you could from the disciplines of Yale, and then evolving it in ways that um, I felt like made sense for me and made sense for what we were doing for our clients, which was a little bit different than what Yale was trying to do with their capital. Do you have any huge seed successes? Was there anybody you seeded that created, you know, made it huge? There are a couple that did well. I mean, we define seeding as having a share in the economics of the business. Okay. Other people define it as being a day one investor. Yeah. So there were things we were a day one investor in, like John Paulson's subprime fund, which was that the best okay. investment I ever made and yeah. ever will be. And then we came out three years later. So that's even better. On the seeding side, there aren't many. We seeded 40 funds. And there aren't many. Maybe there's one or two that still exist. The one that's um, done the best, a fund called Gladstone in London, which is about $3 billion long-term equity fund now, almost coming up on 20 years in business. Um, wow, a lot of them, we probably had at least half a dozen that grew to north of a billion, but a lot of them got there and then didn't sustain it. We had a couple that did quite well and effectively retired. So it's a hard business to sustain for a long period of time. Yeah, you know, I... I question the seeding business a little bit for that reason. You know, I mean, there's, yeah, there's a Dan Loeb and, you know, some of these guys that ton it and consistently do well, but so many either ton it and say, I don't have enough money, I quit, or they have a bad year, they quit, you know, and so it's just, it's hard to to pick them. So I, I was always curious about the seeding model and taking a bet on the one person. And if they get hit by a bus, it's kind of over, or they decide to leave the business. So it's kind of interesting, but you did really well. Uh, you did really well at that. We did, but Eric, I'll tell you, you're absolutely right, though. And I'll, I'll give you the easiest lens to think about it. Any business that is a good business usually has an incumbent who is well-known, mm-hmm. maybe a first-mover advantage, maybe somebody who wasn't a first-mover but was super successful, say Google and Search or something like that. Um, if you look at the seeders, it started as hedge fund seeders, but in any mm-hmm. asset class, you can't name three of them that succeeded or still, you know, Julian Robertson was great. Yep. Dan Stern at Reservoir yeah, early Reservoir. on was yeah, great. I almost went with him, yep. The first movers were a fund called Cap Z, which is gone. Mesero yep. in Chicago had a fund called BRI that. that was yeah. before us. There was this little seeding fund that didn't really succeed called Skybridge that's morphed into all kinds of different things. But it <laughs> yeah. just tells you if nothing else, and you know, I know a lot about the details, but it tells you that if you have a business where no one has really become the leader whether they were early or late, it probably tells you something about the nature of the business itself. I really like that perspective. I hadn't, I, I've always felt what I said and we agree, but we got there from different, different ways. I would, I never articulated it the way you just said it, which is really fascinating. So, so thanks for that thought. I mean, it's very, it's very different. So now you have all this experience at Yale, at, at, at Protégé, you're an expert on investors, picking investors, understanding different different themes and uh, different specializations. And now you're doing the capital allocators. Can you talk about that for the audience? I'm sure almost everybody listening has listened to your podcast, which are fantastic, by the way. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's great to be with you on that front. Talk about that and tell, me, tell us about capital allocators. Sure. Um, well, it started as a uh, side project, classic side, side project, not a side project that you, I could ever imagine would, would grow into business. I don't know if you remember, you probably do the, the old Saturday Night Live change bank. 
Yeah, we make money uh, in volume. Yeah, so for the people I, who don't know, so five pennies, a quarter to five dimes, you know, you know, the exactly. whole thing. And how do you make a, how do you make money? We make it up in volume. Volume. Yeah. So that was how I described the podcast business. Yeah. We're going to have a conversation, share it for free, but we'll make it up in volume. Um, <laughs> there was no, you know, I couldn't put my business school hat on and say there was any rational reason why this would become a business. But I was post protege. I hadn't quite figured out what I was going to do next, and there were a bunch of little projects I was working on. And on the side, I, I just thought of this one day. So some years later. It became the core of what I was doing. Think of it as a hub of a spoke. The hub actually turned into a, a little nice little media asset. Uh, so there's sponsorships and memberships and things like that. And then around the podcast, which focuses on that same intersection between money managers and it's called the CIOs, the allocators of the capital. That's sort of where I've lived my whole investing life. You know, we started to do some events and I do some advisory work and then I invest my own capital. And so... That keeps me busy, and then the rest keeps me out of financial trouble. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I started writing a newsletter, and everyone's like, well, how do you make money? And it's kind of, you make it a value. I, I don't charge. I give it for free, and I do all this stuff, and now I've got sponsors. And so after, after a lot of hours and a lot of work, I'm still, you know, it, it, you know relative to my days on Wall Street and running a hedge fund, it's, it's, uh, it's pennies, but I, I love it. I get to meet fascinating people like yourself. And I always learn from the folks I get to interact with, uh, so it's, it's it's really been it's been good. And now I'm branching off and doing other things, just like just some of the things that you're doing too. So with all you you know, I, I've watched and listened to many of your podcasts, uh, and some of them I, I just I loved. I, I love Chamath. That guy is just amazing. <laughs> um, he gave me some of the best advice. I heard him speak at a conference I don't know ten years ago, and he said the single best investment on the platform is Amazon stock. It's a PE, you're going to make PE returns, just shut up and buy Amazon stock. So I did. And, uh, you know, that worked out okay. Um, so thank you, Chamath. So you've done all these amazing podcasts and had all these amazing guests that have been titans of industry and finance and hedge funds and investing. Who Give, give us some of the most memorable ones and something you learned there. It's hard for me to pick. I, I'll do it. I'll answer the question, yeah. but because I've now done something like 400, and when you have 400 oh. children, it's a little, yeah. you know, there are a few, not many, yeah. maybe a handful of bastardized children, but the rest are all pretty <laughs> valued. Um, I so I do have recently. a, I will say, I do have a recency bias. So when people ask me yep. this, um, one of the, I had Seth Klarman on a couple of months Love ago, him. and he's, it's the only podcast he's ever done. I've, I've known him since I worked at Yale. I've probably asked him for five years, and, <laughs> you know, as he, edited the seventh edition of security analysis he his team called and asked if i still wanted to do it um, and the reason i bring it up which is it's not so much did i love it i thought it was great I mean, he's an incredibly mm -hmm. articulate thinker and he really walked through his the whole about post story and, and what they do and how they do it um most of our episodes have basically the same listenership it doesn't matter you know i thought when a rod came on that was going <laughs> to blow it out and cross over yeah. it was actually the low end of a range yeah. so if you think about it as a standard deviation which you can because after 400 there's some math yeah, plenty of standard deviation of the episodes relative to the mean is like 10 percent. wow so it's really really narrow relative to that seth was like a 100 times standard deviation event which I would tell wow. you ne never happened. So he's had 3x the number of downloads in a normal cycle. Um, and it's already the most listened to. The, the second and third are kind of Barry Stern like Sam Zell. And it took Barry and Sam like three, four years to get the downloads that Seth did in six weeks. Well, you just named three of my favorite investors. I almost went to work for Barry and run his family office maybe 10 years ago. 
and he's a fantastic investor and does really amazing things. Sam Zell, the grave dancer, I'm from Chicago. He was a hero of mine uh, and thought he did amazing things in that equity office trade that he did whatever, you know, was just legendary. And he, yeah. I, I thought he called it, but it, I, I wrote about it and he didn't. And it's funny, you mentioned Seth Klarman, his number two now worked with me at JP Morgan on my desk uh, for a few years, Jim Mooney, who's a fantastic investor and a really, yeah. really smart guy. And my few interactions with Seth have always been, I always learn something. So that's interesting. Yeah. And then I take, let me add one on the other side. So depending on when this comes out, there's an episode coming out soon with someone that people have probably never heard of. His name is Gary Cernovitz. And Gary is the IR guy at an energy fund called Lime Rock, which is reasonably well-known in the institutional community. The reason I had Gary on is he, he just wrote a book that's coming out soon called The Counting House. And it is a fictional story of the CIO of a $6 billion endowment. It's not based on an individual person. He's been an IR guy for 20 years. It is a better insight into what actually goes through the day-to-day and the mind of a CIO than any CIO has explained on the podcast. Um, wow, sounds like I got to read that really book. really nails it. Um, because he can say stuff that a lot of people won't say in public because he's not in the seat. Well, it's very funny. I, I recently interviewed the cast of Billions uh, for an event in New York City last month. And everybody, oh, who is this guy? Is this, is this this guy? You know. And so I asked Wags, who plays one of the main characters, yeah. who's a very outlandish character. I said, so to do this, I heard that it was after this guy or that guy. He's like, what are you talking about? It's not after anybody. You know, there's, there's, it's not after anybody. So I thought, I thought that was funny because I was convinced that I knew who, who, who he was modeling his character after. Yeah. So uh, I, I can't wait to read that book. Uh, can you tell everybody the name of the book again? Yeah, it's called The Counting House. The Counting House. Okay. And it's, it's out or is it coming out? It's coming out. I, I think it's out now or it's coming out very soon. And Gary's going to be on the podcast probably around the time when this comes out in a week or two. Oh, great. Uh, so I, I look forward to reading that book. So, you know, we spoke about this before, but we've seen some pretty major firms implode. And we have, we've seen, even the last year, we've seen some very well-known investors that we would think are top decile folks that got kind of very badly burned by the market last year. What do you think happens to create Uber, Uber success, and then all of a sudden, huge drawdowns. We saw some pretty major folks with 40, 50, 60% drawdowns uh, in a year. So how do you explain that? Well, it's easier to give specific examples. So let's say, let's, mm-hmm. let's assume you're, you're one of those is Tiger Global, right? Who is it? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, of one of the hardest things about investing, and something I didn't fully appreciate when I worked at Yale, is that you have to fully integrate an investment strategy with a business strategy. The reason I say that is that when you see big ups and big downs, it's usually just because the investment strategy is cyclical in some way. So growth stage tech investing is going to have cycles. And if that isn't communicated properly to the clients, everybody loves you when you're going up, everybody hates you when you're going down, but ultimately that's just the strategy. More importantly, strategies, and you could say the same thing about value, right? You could look at like an AQR over the last 15 years, you know, they're doing well now. They hadn't been for a long time. If you have a die-in-the-wool strategy, so we talk about discipline early on, and you just stick to something that knowingly is going to have volatility, that may be a successful investment strategy. It's very hard to sustain over a long period of time as a business strategy. 
And it's one of the reasons why you look at the platform hedge funds today yeah. and they've had, they've been around for a long time, but they keep doing well. And you could say the same thing about Renaissance. When you have some alpha and it gets expressed in lots and lots and lots and lots of small bets. And so that alpha becomes statistically relevant and you can express that month in and month out. That makes for a great business. Whereas a really great value strategy that goes out of favor for 12 years can be really hard to sustain as a business. Just look at the, the iterations GMO has had over the years. Yeah. I mean, you know, I also think some of these tech investors were so big, they were dictating the terms and setting the price levels. And so I think, sure, there's, you know, I agree with what you said, but some of these guys got so aggressive and everybody said, hey, we think it's worth X. And they came in and said, no, we're going to invest at X plus 50% or X plus 100%. And so they took all of it and they set the tone and they were setting their level A to their, their series A and the series B and the series C. And then all of a sudden valuations plummeted. You know, and a lot of these hedge funds that were long short equity started doing privates, and we know how that goes. And a lot of them are, you know, I'm still cannot convince they're all marked properly to market. Yeah. Uh, we just so. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it turns out that if you buy something and keep buying it and buying it, <laughs> the price goes up. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, when you have the size capital, I mean, these some of these guys are so big, they dictate terms and markets. I mean. You know, I ran a, about a billion dollar fund. You know, that's a lot different than 20, 30, 40 billion dollars when you get to make $500 million investments in, in single names. It's crazy. Uh, that's, that, that's interesting. So, uh, so, who do you think is the best manager over the last 20 years or whatever? And how do they, what do they do to differentiate themselves in it? Whether it's long, short equity or credit or macro, the couple that you think have really differentiated themselves and maybe what they did to do that. I'm just going to say the one just because it popped to the top of my head. I mean, it's hard to argue that Ken Griffin doesn't belong in that discussion. I agree 100%. You know, so what has he done? He's systemized an approach to talent, to risk management, to the efficient use of leverage with a significant hiccup in 2008 and barely survived. But um, Yeah, I was at JP Morgan and he almost died that, 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 yeah. there. Um, but if you look at the last 15 years, for and they've scaled and scaled and scaled. And Amazing gotten more transparent with their investors. They brought in talented business people. And it, from the outside, people say, oh, they turn people over all the time, but they have so many employees that I'm not sure their turnover is any higher than anybody else's. Uh, it's just by number, they're going to be more people because there's like 3,000 investors. Yeah, they're huge. Right there. And you, know, you, could, you could go on and on across strategies. Macro is one that, you know, with the exception of Stan <laughs> Druckenmiller, you don't hear about long-term sustained success of macro strategies. And you know, Scott Besant, who was a, a partner of mine a long time ago at Protege, taught me something that's held true to this day, which is that most people think of investing as a batting average business, to use the baseball mm -hmm. analogy. Whereas if you're right 55% of the time, you can be great. If you're right 60% of the time, mm -hmm. you end up in the Hall of Fame. He said the problem with macro is that it's a slugging percentage business, not a batting average business. So what really matters is how right are you when your, your winners win and how much can you not lose when your losers lose, but you might lose a lot more than you win. And that yep. goes back to what I said earlier. The challenge with that is that's very difficult to sustain as a business strategy because you lose a little, you lose a little, you lose a little, your clients leave, then you win a lot. Then they come in and you lose a little, you lose a little, you lose, you know. So it's one of those things where you can't name who are the top five macro hedge funds over the last 20 years. They've had some brights. Brevin Howard had some bright spots, and then key people leave, and then they have some tough times. There's been, you know, Dalio. You know, there's been different guys on the macro side that come in and out of favor. But you're right, and so I think this is an excellent segue into 
something that I really wanted to to speak with you about, and that's the very famous Warren Buffett bet that you made. And so for the viewers, if you could explain how that came about, I love this story, and then talk about how that played out, and then I want to give my perspective. So sure. tell, tell us about it. Um, so now we have to go all the way back to 2007. 2006, 2007. I was riding pretty high, right? So, you know, our business started in 2002 at Protege. We had great returns. We're growing. We start making money. We were also short subprime mortgages at the time. So this was probably the summer of 2007. And Warren had made some statement about fees, effectively. And in an annual meeting that I didn't attend that one, he said something about the fact that hedge funds could never beat the market. And then a year later, around that time, I, I was reading a transcript of one of his Q&As with a group of students, and someone student had asked him about it. And he said something to the effect of, well, nobody took me up on it. You know, I guess he, he sort of said, I'd bet that no hedge funds yeah. can beat the market. I must be right. And I was like, you know, that's just a crock of shit. Um, and so I just thought he was making a bad bet, in large part because at the time, the S&P 500 was at historical highs, not with right. historically low interest rates in a normalized environment. And history would tell you, if you start with the market at a high valuation over the next 10 years, your returns aren't very good. So that's not when you want to invest. And hedge funds had been doing just fine and kind of independent of the market over a long period of time. And so you'd bet on anything but the market. And I bet on hedge funds. So I just sent him a little letter, almost like handwritten in the snail mail. Uh, he gave sent a pithy response and there was sort of a back and forth. So we consummated this bet for charity that was five hedge fund of funds against the S&P 500 index fund for 10 years, starting in Jan 1 of 2008. Look good when you started. You look like a hero. Look good for 14 months. For the first months. 15 months. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in fact, the after about, if I remember it was 14 months when the market dropped 20% the first two months of 2009. The hedge funds were up about 50% over the market. Yeah. And any period of time you looked back, the gap between back then between hedge funds and the market was never more than 2 or 3% a year. So yeah. I thought the bet was over. <laughs> Oops. Oops. There's somebody who makes long-term bets like Warren Buffett knows a little better, but okay. So, so how did it play out? Uh, you know, at, from that point in time when the Fed came in, I, I don't know if there was another year when the hedge funds beat the market. And it still took four or five years for, for the S&P to catch up with that gap. But over that nine-year period, the S&P returned like 17% a year. So nowhere near historical averages, way above. And uh, at the end of it, I think the S&P was up maybe 7% a year and the hedge funds were up two or three. So it wasn't even close. Yeah. But I mean, you know, listen, I, I ran a hedge fund when I ran credit at JP Morgan. My life was talking to CIOs of every major hedge fund that you would know. And when I look, and I'm not suggesting no one should have an allocation to hedge funds. I, I do, but I, I believe in hedge funds. But when I look, when you factor in fees, management fees, incentive fees, and taxes, because a lot of them are not tax efficient with short-term capital gains versus the index, in hindsight, if when I was 20, when I, I got my bar mitzvah money, and I just put it away. If I just bought the S&P and every time I got a check, I put it in the S&P and forgot about it, I would have more money than the venture deals I chased and the hedge funds I chased and this strategy I chased. I'd have done better. It would have been more liquid and I would have had more tax efficiency. Do you, do you agree with that? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. I think that's different from, so first of all, there wasn't a tax adjustment in the bet, right? So yeah, that's right. Hedge funds are a lot less tax efficient. There also wasn't a risk adjustment which mm -hmm. would have favored hedge funds significantly over the market. There wasn't a geographic adjustment because, by the way, it turned out that the hedge funds over those 10 years pretty much matched the Morgan Stanley World Index. 
just the U.S. had significantly outperformed. So there's a lot of adjustments you could have made. Yeah, yeah. And generally, you're right. If you own equities over a long period of time, you'd expect to outperform. Keep your costs low. All that works. That wasn't the bet. The bet was a particular 10-year period yeah. that was starting at a pretty precarious... I mean, that was correct. It did start at a pretty precarious point in time. Now, a lot of people said to me, well, the, you know, hedge funds are supposed to figure that out. Yeah. Well, no, not really. No one's supposed to figure that out. Very few hedge funds are limit levered long with no shorts. And, you know, the Fed comes in, takes rates to zero, buys every asset in the planet and spends trillions of dollars. Now, how did this all end? That's a longer conversation for another podcast, but $34 trillion of debt, over a trillion dollars of interest expense, $100 trillion of entitlements. I got to tell you, personally, I'm a little worried. I don't know. Do you, what do you think about where we are from a fiscal perspective in the United States today? I mean, it's hard not to be worried. The challenge I have with that is I'm really, really good at predicting the past. I mean, I, I'm, I've got- <laughs> Me and you both. I've got Very a great good. hit rate. Um, yeah. I have a weird perspective on it because I started my career in 1992 when I started working for Yale. And one of my first manager meetings was with Jeremy Grantham. Wow. And at the time, he basically was talking about how the bull market had ended and stocks were overvalued. And one of my, sort of that like imprint in mm. my- <laughs> lens of historical valuation was, you know, the very at the beginning of what became a very, very long bull market. Um, one of the smartest guys I ever met was bearish. So, you know, nobody can really predict. It's easy to look at the bloated balance sheets of governments around the world and say this is a problem. It's easy to say how is the U.S. going to finance this debt at higher interest rate costs as the debt rolls over. All that is true and and rightful cause for concern. I just don't know what it means for markets. And when I when I talk about not being able to time markets. And this kind of goes back to the discussion of discipline. I have learned over the years that like, I just deeply, deeply believe that. And that is, no matter what we want to talk about, about like the kind of stuff that, yeah, I've, I've been on CNBC a couple of times. They don't like me because I don't really say anything that catches anyone's attention because I, I just don't have those kinds of views. But so when I look at it, right, it's easy to be concerned. It would not surprise me. And there's a non-material risk of a significant sell-off in markets. But timing things is really hard. And most of the time after that happens, you know, there'll be a few people who say, hey, you know, Jeremy Grantham's going to say, hey, I told you so. A whole yeah. bunch of I told you yeah. so's. Those I told you so's never measure opportunity cost along the way. Hmm. So I just, I stay invested. I don't know how to time markets. Uh, so I think... What you just said is 150,000% right. And I called the markets twice. I was short the world in 2007 and I covered in 2009. Great, early 2009. The problem is since then, I've come out of the markets way too many times that I just shut up and just stayed in the market. I would have done a hell of a lot better than Mr. Timer. Oh, I'm pulling money out and I'm paying tax. Like, very inefficient. So as I said, if I had my bar mitzvah money and all I did is invest in the S&P 500 and forgot it, I would have done much better than all my brilliant trading and venture investing and private equity and all this crap that I've done uh, with some home runs, but far too many that did not prove to be the case. So if you were giving advice to your son uh, who is starting or daughter starting a hedge fund today, what would it be? And regardless of whether it's equity or your credit or macro, if, if it was a, a child of yours that was starting, what, what would be the key piece of advice you would give them uh, to in significantly impact? increase their chances of success. Yeah. Um, well, there's two parts of that. There's the advice I would give them. And then how do you think about success? Mm -hmm. Okay. The advice I would give someone 
is to go back to the old school, which is the best way. This, these are all apprenticeship businesses. Everybody wants to run and do their own thing and learn on their own and hear all these great stories mm. of people who learned on their own. That's not how most people learn well. Most people learn well by finding someone or an organization that's really good at training people and spending as much time as possible learning everything you can and not jumping ship until you feel you've done that. And then maybe there's time to move on and learn from somebody else. So I think that there's a big entrepreneurial bug of everyone who wants to start their own fund and people say, hey, the sooner you're started, the better. And all that's true. You will learn a lot of lessons. You just may never learn some of the lessons that you could have learned from someone who's been through it. So that's on an individual. In terms of like the career, one of the things that has always been ironic to me, and it was one of the reasons I left Protégé, a lot of times people in the industry, and let's say they're stock pickers, they're in the business of analyzing other businesses and industries. And they don't take a step back and analyze their own. So if you looked at the hedge fund industry and look at where supply and demand is for capital, it's a pure secular, this is a very mature industry on pure secular decline, right? Mature meaning it's highly concentrated. That's mm -hmm. why a Citadel, a Millennium, a D. Shaw, a, you know, Farallon, whoever it is, are very, very large. And there's very little differentiation in new products. So it's a brutally difficult time in the industry to start something new. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just people have to calibrate their expectations accordingly, meaning they're not going to make, if you're in it for money, you will not make the money that someone who started a fund successfully 25 years ago did. It just won't yeah. happen. Um, it's an amazing business for people who love the game, but they have to be doing it for the right reasons. And a lot of people come into the industry because they think it's, a way to make money, and it is, but I think it's going to be significantly more difficult for people to have the kind of lucrative careers that were available 20, 30 years ago for people starting then. Yeah, I mean, the growth of ETFs, and now there's an ETF for every asset class, basically. You know, I think you know, it's very interesting. You and I started our careers at the same time. Yeah. I started my career in 1992 at Continental Bank, which was bought by Bank of America in 1994. And so I learned under some really good people. I write about it. I write about my lessons learned from Jamie Dimon and Jimmy Lee and all these people. I just wrote one about Pete Vakia boss uh, that I had at Continental Bank. And I think that all those lessons on someone else's dime made me better than I otherwise would have been. You know, I have a 17-year-old son who is now, every, for a long time, everything I said was gospel, and now he's going to be 18 in, an, in another month. So nothing, I, I'm not right about anything, apparently. Um, and so when I would give him su suggestion like, oh, you know, going to work for someone else, you're going to learn a lot. Go to work for somebody else. Why would I go to work for somebody else? I'm like, well, because you don't really know what you're doing, and that way you can learn under somebody who's done it for 30 years. <laughs> Why would I do that? I, so I'm kind of going through that with my son. And so I can only uh, imagine that a lot of young people feel the same way, a little frustrating. Um, so tell me what's your, what's your favorite part about three. I, I mean, I got into it for the people, right? I don't actually make a lot of investments in direct companies. I tend to almost never do that unless it's something I know something about and can add a little value, which is that tends to be this narrow world of fintech asset management, but I've known Mark for a long time. We were, I was the Patsy at his poker table 20 something years ago with a bunch of other Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner was at that table yep. and uh, some terrific people. And when I heard he was putting it together, you know, Mark is gifted among other things at bringing interesting people together. So that's been my favorite part of it. It's kind of why I showed up and then really curious to see what 
becomes of 3i? Does it continue to grow as an investment platform? Does it become kind of a shared service platform? All kinds of interesting things when you bring a bunch of really interesting people together. Uh, and I, you know, there's some terrific, Teddy and Cassie, some terrific people working together to try to figure that out. It's just fun to be a part of it. I agree hundred percent. You know, I got involved early and I've known Mark for a dozen years. We've made a lot of investments together and I think it's great. And the network and the people I've connected with have been really fantastic. And, you know, it's funny, I, I get, I'm so fortunate for the life I live and I, I did, I was fortunate to work on Wall Street, have a hedge fund. And now that I'm part of the building this Rosen Report and part of the 3i network, it is amazing that I get to interact with people like you and, you know, meet, meet some such great people. So I, I really, I feel very fortunate, uh, you know, to be part of 3i and, and just meet so many great and interesting people. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. Well, well, Ted, this has been fascinating for me. I, I love your stories. I love everything that you've accomplished. I'm a big fan. And so thank you for joining the 3i Founder Series and the Rosen Report. So and I always end my, my, my little things, got to put on my Rosen Report hat, which I'm going to send you in the mail. I'll get your address. You're going to get a Rosen Report hat. So thank, thank you so much, Ted. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Eric.